0: Indeed. Today is the day. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. For those of you who have been praying uh, with and for our family, thank you so much. Matthew came home from the hospital yesterday. So we are uh, rejoicing in that. And everybody got a good night's sleep. So (laughs) praise Jesus. Uh, Okay. So uh, it is Monday, Monday, the 4th of November here on Mornings with Carmen. Yesterday, in case you missed it, was the one year anniversary in advance. I don't know what you call that, the one year prior to. Uh, So we have the one year in advance of next year's 2020 presidential election. So November the 3rd, 2020, is the date upon which the United States of America will elect a president. We may reelect the one we have now. We may elect a new one. No one yet knows. Uh, But yesterday marked exactly one year before the next presidential election. And so on that day, um, a really wide and diverse uh, group of Christians, I mean, I don't even call them a group, collaborative coalition of Christians, initiated something called Golden Rule 2020, a call for dignity and respect in politics. You can find it at revivecivility.org, revivecivility.org. And the organizers explained the goal is to, quote, remind Christians that our faith has something to say about how we talk to each other and uh, that those insights are relevant to our political discussions, particularly in difficult times like these. So the campaign is supported by a really remarkably diverse coalition, um, as as broad and wide as the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, the Department of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, and then very, very liberal mainline denominations like the Presbyterian Church USA and the Episcopal Church. So when we talk about things upon which Christians can agree, even if we agree on um, very few secondary or tertiary issues, we, we certainly agree that not only are we responsible to advance the gospel in our generation, but we are, we are to do so in ways that honor Jesus. And so this mutual commitment uh, to Golden Rule 2020, this call for dignity and respect in politics, is something that I think I can commend to uh, each and every person listening today. Uh, Quote, there will be a focus on the practical application of the Golden Rule and how politics in 2020 could be different if Christians practice biblical teachings about how to treat people with whom we disagree. So there you go. uh, Golden Rule 2020. I'm commending it not only for the glory of God, but for the good of our country. You can check it out. There's actually an article posted at ChristianPost.com. You can also find it at revivecivility.org if you want to sign on. And we're going to turn to some other headlines at Christian Post, and we're going to do so with Brandon Showalter. Actually, last night in an interview with Axios that aired on HBO, Joshua Harris, whom you will remember as the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but who also who left the Christian faith, uh, left the church he was pastoring, uh, announced that he is also leaving his wife. Um, he was interviewed last night and uh, about uh, all of that, and here's a quote. If you're not living according to the teaching of the Bible and you're living in unrepentant sin, then you have to be put out of the church. So I excommunicated myself, essentially. Well, quoting someone uh, that he said he could relate to, uh, Joshua Harris concluded the interview this way. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I'm going to talk about people who leave the Christian faith up next with Brandon Showalter from The Christian Post. We'll be right back. Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can check out what we're talking about today at ChristianPost.com. You can also follow Brandon on social media at Brandon M. Show. Welcome, Brad. Welcome back, Brandon.
1: Thank you, Carmen. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Um, So, leaving Christianity. uh, So, this has now become maybe such a public trend. I mean, the reality is people have been leaving the faith since the days uh, of of right. Jesus, right, and so mm-hmm. maybe the the reality that people leave leave the faith we all sort of recognize that there 's lots of people who come in the front doors of our church, maybe they even become members, maybe they become baptized, but they certainly then walk right out the back door of the church, um, but we now live in a generation where people seem very willing to be very public about their renunciation of the Christian faith. Talk with us about this maybe trend, and then tell us some of these stories, because you guys actually have a whole series on this uh, at ChristianPost.com.
1: Yes, well, um, as you mentioned there in the introduction about Joshua Harrison and Axios, you're correct that none of this is particularly new. You know, people have been abandoning their faith for a long time, but people are just more public about it, and so I am particularly proud of my editors and our colleagues because we, we did a series, as you just stated, called Leaving Christianity. And it was in part not just because of the Joshua Harris incident, but others. Uh, a lot of journalistic ink um, and surveys have, you know, have, journalistic ink has been spilled and surveys done about the rise of the so-called nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. And my assessment of it is that while, yes, there is uh you know, there are more people these days that are willing to be public about leaving the faith. What I think is a real—the what's the, the, the narrative that makes a lot of sense to me is that what you're seeing is that people who once identified as Christians who probably weren't really, you know, following Jesus at all, but were nominally, you know, belonging to some kind of denominations would just say that. And so the numbers weren't really so accurate, but now people are just being more honest with how they identify but there's also no question that there are people who are leaving the faith, um, and so our, this series was to explore the contributing factors, to take an honest, uh, you know, look at the problems within the church that are causing some of this to happen, um, and also just to listen. Most importantly, to to hear what people endure growing up in church, what hear people how their experiences shaped who they were, what they came to believe about God, um, and decided that this, they could not, you know, in their own conscience, define themselves as a the follower of Jesus Christ. Um, which, which what we often find, and what we heard a lot of, is that they, uh, it's really the issues that they have are mostly with the church and not with God, but they can't always disentangle or separate the, separate those two things.
0: Okay, so if you follow me on Twitter, I'm at Carmen LaBurge, and if you want to weigh in, and maybe uh, we'll do a a quick poll of listeners, um, at least those who are on Twitter. I've just posted the question, are more people leaving Christianity, or is it that more people are just more public about it today? So a little poll posted there on Twitter, um, and I've tagged Brandon, so if you follow Brandon, you should see it as well. Um, So, Brandon... When you uh, when you and your colleagues at The Christian Post uh, have been exploring in conversation with some of these individuals and then also sort of surveying the surveys um, that are out there. Is there anything that sort of stands out to you as a common thread or um, maybe something that is true today that hasn't been true in the past? Like it does seem as if more people are leaving the faith, but maybe maybe it just feels that way.
1: I think part of it is just as we're aware more now of uh, things that are going on uh, is with the 24-7 news cycle, people just people are just talking more. You, this is just kind of one of those things that people didn't talk about uh, so much because um, I, the, the one thing that I will say that has sort of stuck out is uh, there were a lot of people who, uh, if they experienced kind of uh, abusive church leaders or narcissistic pastors or you know, negative experiences in the church. Um, there seems to be an unveiling of that where that was just, they, they just could not, you know, like I just said, they, they couldn't disentangle God from that. I mean, it's, I, I've interviewed people who, for whatever reason, and I just think it's probably a miracle or the grace of God, that they were able to persevere in their faith and they were able to always say, okay, I know that maybe this person in the church and leadership did this to me, but I know that that wasn't God and I still believe um, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, every person is different. Um, Another thing that I heard, you know, we saw a lot of was just people were, um, they just felt like, uh, you know, Christianity was kind of a performance and that they just kind of couldn't connect to the, I mean, I interviewed a non-Christian who was sort of—he described it as Christianity, the musical. He, he was, his, his observation mm. was it wasn't really a family; they didn't feel connected to it, and so why bother? Mm. And you know, people are hungry for those real relationships. But if they're—if the church is not a place where those things can flourish, I mean, you can find community elsewhere. Um, and uh, there are there are many other factors, but uh, I, I think that. I mean, I really, I just cannot emphasize enough how proud I am for, of my colleagues and our editors for doing this series um, because I've, I've heard from a lot of people. I, people have messaged me saying, you know, I'm really enjoying this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so this is such a helpful thing to read. And, it, you know, I've, I really feel like I can relate to it in some ways, even though I'm, you know, a Christian. And even some non-Christians are saying kudos to the Christian Post for publishing some of these stories and taking a deeper, critical look and all of this, because um, it's it's a subject that needs analysis, it needs airing, and I think we, especially as Christians, have to be willing to do it.
0: Well, and I feel like it's compelling in terms of uh, evaluating, uh, not only, you know, within my own family, like how are we uh, keeping an eye out for people who are visiting the church, but then how are we right. also keeping an eye out for people who used to be sitting next to us but maybe aren't anymore, or single people who— we see at church, how are we folding them into the family of faith? Um, you know, how are we, you know, sort of diminishing the expectation that everybody's going to get married and have kids, just not the truth anymore uh, at right. all. It really has never been the truth, but we've sort of acted in right. the church as if that's the only right. way to be a Christian. So I just think there are some of those conversations that it, it does provoke. Um, one of the one of the passages of Scripture that kind of leapt to my mind um, as I was reading through the series, it, you know, we, we tend to continue, at least within the Christian family, we we tend to continue to sort of elevate the office of pastor um, in ways that you know uh, Luther would not have appreciated, uh, understanding the priesthood of all believers. Um, but I do think that when pastors, in particular, others in church leadership, cause another Christian to to stumble to and to leave the faith, I am not. I am quite certain that um, people are not ruminating on Matthew 18, verse 6, uh, where Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and there he's talking about all of his little ones, all, all right. of the little ones, that doesn't matter how uh-huh. old they are. If anyone right. causes one of these little ones uh, who believe in me to stumble, to leave the faith, it right. would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Like Jesus is really serious about those who cause believers to to stumble and uh, and to lose their faith and to walk away. So um, I just that was one of the passages that leapt to mind in terms of our responsibility and how we lead others. Hey Brandon, let's take a break, and then when we come back, um, I'd love to uh, talk with you about this Kanye West story as well as a Trump hotel canceling a prayer meeting on behalf of uh, the Kurdish population. So that's up next here with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post on Mornings with Carmen. (laughs)
2: How you get so much favor on your side, except the measure Lord and Savior, I replied.
0: All right, we've band actually band 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 been talking uh, fairly frequently over the last week or so about Kanye West. We have talked about um, his music project. We have talked about his film project just this past Friday um, with Adam Holt. And today we're going to talk a little more Kanye West, but we're going to do so from a slightly different angle with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. So. Uh, what Brandon your piece posted at christianpost.com Kanye West god quote wanted people to see my pain so more people can relate tell us about tell us about this
1: Well that was an interesting interview that he did with comedian James Corden on and it's usually a segment that James Corden does called Carpool Karaoke but they did it on Kanye's uh, plane instead with a group of uh, singers that Kanye West has been doing with his Sunday services now and it was just a really—I I thought the interview was pretty interesting in that it, they really went into some deep waters of uh, areas of his life and where you know Kanye West is sharing about his journey of faith. And what I've been sort of telling people is that just give this thing time. I think a lot of people get very excited about when they see someone with his public profile uh, come to the Lord. And you know, I'm just—certainly, I think that's remarkable, miraculous, really— but, um it's it's I just give this thing time. We're just gonna wait and see what what God does, and um, but in the course of that interview, he really opened up about you know his his very real struggles with you know marriage being hard, family being challenging, and just some of his his own past experiences that were painful, um, but that the journey of his own faith, his newfound profession of faith in Jesus Christ was... Part of that was that people would see his struggles um, because everybody has struggles and they can relate to that so I, I thought it was, a, it was a very interesting interview and you know, Kanye dared to go uh, to his credit I I thought he, he really went there into some, uh, some 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 tough territory and so he, he believes so, that God is that God is using even the, the uglier things and the broken things in his life so more people can relate to him
0: so I uh, I appreciated some of these quotes that are in here where you know he's he is talking about um, you know marriage is marriage is hard and I think there are some people who are going to read these read these quotes by Kanye and they're going to say this is not a person who has been fully discipled in the faith like he he's using well, of course uh, and so well Brandon so one of the things that stands out to me um, is that I think that as Christians read your piece posted at ChristianPost.com I am hoping that we would then think to ourselves okay how would I disciple such a person. How would I right. disciple a person who is saying, you know, I my marriage feels like uh every year is 500 years, like right or 100 years and therefore 500 years. Um I would say, you know what? Um that's that's actually pretty godly. Um godly mm-hmm. uh, God took a bride from Genesis to Revelation and she's hard to live with and it's us. And yeah, so when that's we really talk good. about well, I'm just saying when we talk about the marriage analogy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Let's let's turn it around. Let's shine a mirror on ourselves and let's say, how hard am I to live with? Like, right for God, I am. Mm-hmm. I am a part of the bride of Christ. I am a part of the church. How hard am I being to live with? Right for the for the <laughs> for the bridegroom. Um, and so I think there are some conversations that as Christians we can bring to bear, and instead of just writing off people who are still. I mean, we're all still developing. We're all disciples. We're all still growing in our faith. So instead of writing off people who um, have very public platforms and who are Christians and who are going to grow publicly, he's going to grow publicly. Um, right. How do we, you know, how do we encourage and how do we then teach our kids maybe to think through some of these, um, some of these quotes? They're the ones that are going to hear them and read them. They're the ones watching, uh, you know, carpool karaoke. I am not. Um, and so, you know, I just mm-hmm. think that we need to be mindful of who the audience is and who is hearing and listening um, to these to these things. And then how can we as Christians engage? All right. Hey, we got like one minute. Tell us what's going on with um, this Trump Hotel ca- canceling a prayer meeting on behalf of the Kurds.
1: Well, that was actually um, uh, there, was a, there was a Trump Hotel meeting here in D.C. that where it was a, a group um, that uh Had scheduled a prayer meeting on behalf of the Kurds, and of course, in light of the foreign policy, you know, developments, uh, that the meeting was canceled. And I actually called the Trump Hotel, and found that a lot of the sort of the swirl about that wasn't true because that Mm. booking was done by a third party, and there was a miss. You know, the two Mm. parties eventually came to an understanding about it all. So, you know, if they found another hotel, and the Kurds got some prayer, and boy, they need (laughs) it. And I've got friends over there. We were working with them and I mean God bless the Kurdish people, but uh, that was a story that, you know, was became a little bit more buzzed about than really there was more of a news article that should have been written. But it was you know, the important thing is is that the meeting got rescheduled at a good hotel and the Kurds were lifted up.
0: Well, and the the reminder, I think, to me and to all of us is don't believe the first headline that you read, because the first headline mm-hmm. might simply be sensationalism and, yep. and fanning, fanning the flame of something. So thank you for doing the difficult journalistic work of actually tracking down the story and letting mm-hmm. us know uh, what was behind that. And let's certainly all be praying the headline news of the day. Brandon Showalter, thank you so much. You guys can find Brandon. Yeah, absolutely. You can find him on Twitter at Brandon M Show. You can also always find what he is working on at christianpost.com. We'll be right back. Okay, a couple of you uh, have have asked for a little bit more information about what I talked about at the top of the hour which is about reviving civility here in the United States and about Golden Rule 2020. So this, um, you can find it at revivecivility.org, revivecivility.org. And it's an effort this year um, to join something called Golden Rule 2020. And that is a call for dignity and respect in politics, and it is, you know, it's obviously a play on or a capital, you know, capitalizing on Jesus' instruction uh, that we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And Golden Rule 2020 is an effort to remind Christians across the country that our faith actually has something to say. Not only in uh, in the conversations of the day, but with each other in the conversations of the day, in terms of how we talk to and about one another. So Christians, um, people who self-identify as Christians in the culture today, do not always agree on secondary or tertiary issues, but we should agree on primary issues, on gospel issues, and we should agree that we're going to treat one another and everyone else with respect to them as image bearers of the living God. So you can check it out. And when you go there, you're going to say, this is a totally secular deal. Okay. I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to keep in mind that a secular institution at the University of Arizona is is behind this effort to revive civility. So it's revivecivility.org. What does it say to you and me? that um, it took a secular institution called the National Institute for Civil Discourse to step forward and call Christians to treat one another like Christians. Hmm, that's compelling as well. All right, when we come back, I'm going to be uh, talking with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. He and I are going to talk about an Alabama abortion bill that is being blocked. We're also going to talk about these outrageously expensive Medicare for all proposals, as well as President Trump naming Paula White as the faith outreach point person in the White House. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So I realize that from time to time, you do not uh, have the ability to listen to a full two hours of Mornings with Carmen every day of the week because, you know, you you don't have 10 hours to sit and sit with me. And I appreciate that. But maybe we've talked about something on the show um, that you— you've thought to yourself, I want to listen to that again. Or I know that I missed Oz Guinness on Carpe Diem and I really want to go back and hear that. Or, um, gosh, there was a show that I heard and I really want to share that with somebody else. All right. So Paul Perot does the diligent work of turning this live broadcast into podcasts. And those podcasts are posted at myfaithradio.com on the Mornings with Carmen page and also on the podcast page. So you can go there, you can listen to them, you can download them, or you can share them on your own social media to, you know, bring other people into our listening community and listening family, or you can share them specifically with someone who you know uh, a particular portion of the program would be a help. So there you go. Go to MyFaithRadio.com, grab uh, a recent podcast, download it, listen to it, share it with someone else, um, and and maybe share it on your social media, again, to uh, to broaden the reach of what we're doing here on Mornings with Carmen. we sure appreciate it. We'll be right back.
2: There's a profound phrase in the prayer of St. Francis that really inspires me. It is in giving that you receive. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, it's really true that when you give a lot, you receive a lot. Of course, that's not the reason to give, but it's a beautiful outcome. You can get great joy and fulfillment by giving to others. You can find new relationships just by sharing your unique talents. Everyone has a unique way of making a difference in the lives of others. It could be giving financially to your church or using your talents to teach others. Maybe it's volunteering to help with children's ministry. The inspiring thing about generosity is that there's no rule on what or how much you should give as long as it comes from the heart. So give what you can and be prepared to receive more than you ever dreamed, a life of contentment, confidence, and generosity.
0: again today, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can check out uh, Hillsdale at hillsdalecollege.edu. You can follow Adam on social media at Carrington AM. Welcome back, sir.
3: Glad to be here again.
0: All right. So, um, let's talk about this Alabama abortion bill. We have actually not covered this yet on the show. I know that you're probably thinking to yourself, well, why not? What have you guys been talking about? um tell us tell us what um what the bill is and what has happened to it um in an alabama court
3: right what well, listeners may have remembered that there was this uh, Spring of pro life legislation in the states uh, and, a, and back in the spring and early summer, and about eight different states passed uh, many of them were what were called heartbeat bills, which said that the moment that uh, a heartbeat is detected uh, abortion an abortion cannot occur. And the most restrictive or the most, uh, I'd say pro-life of these was Alabama's that effectively, uh, banned all abortions, basically made it impossible for you to, uh, get under its strictures for, for having an abortion. And, uh, immediately this went to court. It's been percolating in the courts for a little bit and a, a federal court just a couple of days ago, uh, uh, stopped it from going into effect. It was supposed to go into effect November 15th and basically said it violates Supreme Court precedent. It violates the Constitution. And this is, I think, setting the stage that uh, I think most people thought would happen, which is uh, many are hoping that the Alabama bill goes all the way up to the Supreme Court and becomes a test case to see where the justices are on Roe v. Wade. And so the next step of that was just taken this last week with uh, that bill being struck down. And i Say to those who are pro-life in the audience, and, and I assume that's uh, probably a lot. Um, this is not a unanticipated result, even if it can be disappointing. This really is meant to be a test case to see where the Supreme Court is on Roe.
0: Okay, and so when we get to the when we get to the place in time when the Supreme Court takes up a case um, that's related to Roe v. Wade. We we have precedent, or and is am I saying that correctly? Is it precedent or precedents? And when when we have justices who are very respectful of the precedent that has been set in the past, how do originalists then sort of bring back the conversation that a right to abortion was never in there in the first place? Is I mean that will be the conversation, will it not?
3: It will, and that, and it's already the conversation on the court. A fascinating sub debate on on the last term, last spring, where all these opinions, where in addition to trying to decide the actual question before the court, they were all arguing on how much they should stick to precedent. And a lot of the pro ro justices, even though the cases had nothing to do with abortion, saying you really need to respect precedent no matter what. And I think they had that this possible case in mind. And I think what originalists have to say is um, precedent is a good way to deal with ambiguity. It's a good way to be consistent with the law when you're not sure exactly what the law has to demand. And, And that can happen sometimes. But ultimately, which is the ruling document? Which are the ruling set of documents for our people. And it's the Constitution. It's not a court precedent. A precedent is an attempt to apply the law rightly. It's not the law itself. And I think the argument's going to have to be, ultimately, the Constitution trumps everything else even if there is a long line of precedent for it. And if you don't have that, you have rule of judges, not rule of we, the people that ordain the Constitution. And that's a much worse thing than saying we're gonna upend what justices have said for a couple decades. And I think that's gonna have to be the argument, the Constitution through the people rules, not judges and what they've said in past opinions.
0: Remind us, And again, I'm talking with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Remind us, uh, we talk about federal judges. There's a whole, like, hierarchy of of the federal court. The Supreme Court is at the very top. But there are lots of layers of the the federal bench. And um, I think that it's pretty amazing how many judges this president has had the opportunity to appoint.
3: Absolutely. And, and, and only a fraction. Uh, people always say, we're going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gets about 9,000 petitions. I think I might have said this in a previous discussion. That's okay. To, Not everybody's to, listening to take, take, it every
0: minute.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, 9,000 petitions. Now, these are state and federal courts, and they take about 70 to 80. Uh, So most decisions, most uh, uh, um, of the law's application happens in lower courts, including several thousand of those being in the federal courts. And that is a very important thing that even though a lot of these lower court judges, we don't really pay much attention to what they're doing and saying. And I understand people have lives besides me, uh, but (laughs) they uh, um, they they they. who appoints them matters a lot too, and I think that one thing you see under under this president is the 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 more originalist legal community has spent decades things like the Federalist Society really building up a community and a and a approach to the Constitution, educating people, educating lawyers, future judges, and that there is a big crop of really talented lawyers and judges to choose from, and that that uh, he is actually appointed more of these than I think anyone since Bill Clinton. Uh, and that's made a major effect, I think, on, on, on the judiciary for decades to come on questions like abortion and, and a number of other th- constitutional questions.
0: All right. So as of October the 1st, which I realize is now a month old, so my, my information might be old, but President Donald Trump has made 152 Article Three judicial appointments. Two of those have been Supreme Court justices, 43 appellate court uh, judges, and 105 district court judges in addition to two judges on the court of international trade there you go there's there is the by the numbers portion of today's show all right adam Carrington and i are going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to do some different kind of numbers and that's going to be some numbers related to proposals um, that democrats are putting forward in terms of medicare for all you may have heard the number 52 trillion we're going to figure out what 52 trillion is we'll we'll be right back
1: I'm smelling coffee singing just outside. Here comes your mercy,
0: streaming in
1: with the morning
3: light. My Returning
0: to my conversation with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, you can check out Hillsdale at hillsdalecollege.edu. You can find Adam on social media, Carrington AM. Uh, okay, so I heard Nancy Pelosi respond to the um, proposal by Democratic candidates for president um, that ha- she certainly wants health care for all. Nancy Pelosi wants health care for all. Um, but she all but said Medicare for all is a terrible idea. Senator Elizabeth Warren um, all but said, if you like your health care, you can't keep it. Um, and the proposals related to Medicare for all um, are not just uh, put forward by Senator Warren, but but she's the one who is, you know, kind of the the high beams are on right now. Because her proposal is out there, and they have set a price tag to it of something like $52 trillion. There's not a question in there, but it's, the whole thing is a question.
3: Okay, yeah, I, I I was trying to count up how much monopoly money I had when I was looking at the numbers for $52 trillion. Yeah, it, it, this is interesting because healthcare is obviously a persistent issue in our politics because it's a really tough problem. We were kind of in a paralysis, and that paralysis is we don't like a lot of things about the system currently – But we're very, very nervous about any changes. And I think what uh, and and think about the fact that uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi is against this. She's the one that basically shoved through uh, the health, the Affordable Care Act back in 2010 almost by her own force alone. And she thinks that this is problematic. And I think, I think that is the case because um, this really moves away from the Democrats' old incremental approach of slowly expanding the government's role and control of healthcare to trying to go all the way right now. And I think she sees that uh, uh, that is a massive liability. And particularly what they're dealing with now is how do you pay for it? And even SNL gave uh, um, uh, Warren a hard time about this this past week. And I don't know how many how many people watched that. And, uh, yeah, how do you pay $53 trillion over the next decade? And what uh, Warren is trying to do with her plan is now say that they're going to raise $20.5 trillion in new spending, yet somehow not tax the middle class. And in some way, at the same time, give everyone health care they want while taking them all off their current insurance. And I think that uh, uh, um, Speaker Pelosi's savvy, as you said, about the idea that that much disruption, that much of big numbers, uh, it's unlikely to me that that's going to play politically well beyond the very core of the Democratic base.
0: Well, and I think that we can't even get our uh, – we can't get our mind around a national debt, a total U.S. national debt of $22 trillion. And so how could we possibly be talking about something that is more than twice that, uh, 52 or $53 trillion? And when you talk about a rounding error of a trillion dollars, right, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I find myself, like, wanting to know um, – If this person is she seems Elizabeth Warren actually seems of all of the candidates up there to have really done her policy homework better than anybody else. She is putting this forward as what she views as a legitimate policy proposal. She wants the American people to elect her in order to make this happen. Um, We don't have that many people in America who do not have access to health care. I mean, we have some, but we're not talking about an overwhelming number of people who lack access to health care. We have people frustrated by how they are having to pay for it, and I understand that, having just spent a week at a children's hospital. Um, But but this is not the solution.
3: Right. I I think that um, this is in some ways another test in addition to that. It's a test in whether... We as Americans take actual policy seriously at this point, and whether we believe that proposals made by people we elect actually have any chance of becoming law, or if we really just think that these kinds of things are signaling whose side we're on and who we support, because as you're saying, the, the, the math just doesn't add up. And the question is, are we ever going to actually have to pay for the debts we're racking up? And the mm-hmm. debts we've already racked up, we, we, we've just racked up a trillion dollar deficit in, a, in, in an era of economic boom, um, you know, which seems to me an even more egregious problem than when we did so in 2009 and 2010 in a recession. And I, I think it really does ask the American people, are we taking seriously whether our leaders actually can and will do what they're saying they can and will do? And are we willing to actually do as citizens the hard thing of saying, tell me what the actual payoff is? And, and I think that the American people are really going to be troubled by this. I don't think this is a winning issue in the fall for the things you've said. We have health care issues, but I think – The paralysis we have is making it so uh, politicians like Senator Warren think they can sort of just say what they want and not have to necessarily uh, uh, back it up with actual policy proposals. And you said Warren's been some of the most serious with policy proposals, if not her on the Democratic side. I don't think anybody else then.
0: All right. We have to pick a new subject. Um, Let's talk about Paula White. This is interesting. I I am one of those people who has actually been thinking uh, for almost three years now that the president needed to fill this position in the White House, uh, this position related to how the White House relates to people of faith around the country. Um, I probably was not thinking he would fill that outreach position with Paula White. Tell us uh, about her and what you think we need to know.
3: Sure um and and I agree that filling this position was important and there are certainly many 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 uh uh Christian uh, leaders, pastors, uh others who who would be willing to do this, uh many that are supporting the president uh, very vocally. Um White has been a sort of informal spiritual advisor to the president for a long time, well before he was president. She um uh, she, I think two things that I think, can be cause for concern. And and of course, we can talk about how orthodox or unorthodox uh, the president's uh, advisors should be. I mean, he can pick whoever he wants, but uh, she has made two points, I think, that should be of concern. One is her Christology, her, her view of Jesus, and she has tried to deny that she is anti-Trinitarian, which is a pretty big thing, but she has made some comments that at least should are more inarticulate than a a a, a clergy person should, uh, and the second is, she's been very much a purveyor and in the network of prosperity gospel preachers, which I think very much don't read the book of Job enough and don't understand how much struggle and problem and difficulty there is in the Christian life and how much we're not promised prosperity and I think can really hurt the faith of those who who struggle in a Job-like fashion with uh, the, the life God has provide, given for them in in before they come to glory, and really overemphasizes uh, 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 that God is supposed to give you prosperity in this life, which I just don't think checks out with with the biblical witness. And I don't want to go too out far out of my my own uh, purview. You know, I'm not a theologian, but I think those are some some issues I've had with her.
0: Uh We're all theologians, like right. We're all thinking about the things of the faith, and we're all thinking about God. So you can you can just go ahead and claim that mantle as well, among other things. All right. Uh, Adam Carrington, thank you so much for joining us. You think, uh, you think deeply about things that matter, and you do so from a Christian worldview, and we genuinely appreciate it. We'll be, uh, we'll be right back. All right. So uh, we are at the end of this hour, but the next hour is going to be really robust. We're actually going to turn our attention from headlines here in the United States to things happening around the world. And the first conversation is going to be about hunger. And so I want you to just consider for a moment um, what, you, what you ate last, when you ate last, uh, when you intend to eat next, what you plan to eat next. Um, and then consider that there are 814 million people around the world who do not know the answer to, uh, to that question, where their next meal will come from. 815 million people in the world today living with, with severe hunger. Um, in a world of such great abundance and among a people who recognize our responsibility um, to do for the least of these, our brothers and sisters, as we would do unto Christ. And so just a, um, just a conversation coming up next with uh, Jenny Dyer. We have talked with her on a number of occasions before. We're going to talk about the end of hunger. Can we make that happen? Could we bring that about in this generation? The end of hunger up next with Jenny Dyer.